Welcome to Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where we talk with people leading creative, outside-the-box spiritual endeavors that inspire and engage us. Our vision is to unfold God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And bring into being Ha'alam Haba, the just world to come. You are listening to the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where faith leaders, activists, or people who simply want to change the world have left the building too, with Marta, Mandy, and Lily. This season, our focus is on fostering interconnection. We are living in a moment filled with polarization and isolation, but also connection and joy. We will talk with faith leaders across religious traditions about how they are cultivating communities and spiritual practice that brings us into deeper relationship with ourselves, each other, and all of the natural world. What does it mean to build authentic relationships with each other and all living beings? How does religious and spiritual leadership connect with this work? And what is cracking open in this moment that may allow us to deepen together? In this second episode of season six called To See and Be Seen, we talk with Reverend Jen Butler, a UCC minister in Corvallis, Oregon, at First Congregational United Church of Christ, where she's been the co-conspirator in the work of community and restoration since 2010. In the last three years, a focus of her ministry has been as a community organizer at the intersections of poverty and housing, and as founder of the Safe Place Program, where she tries to live in service to those experiencing houselessness by cultivating communities of belonging. Hey! Hey, Mandy and Lily, and we're super excited for Reverend Jen Butler to join us today. Um, It's exciting as we um, enter into more of this fostering connection. Um, Jen is a UCC minister, um, so she is a part of Mandy and my denomination, and um, and also um, Lily, how do you know Jen? Hi, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, I know Jen because um, we met through my work at On Being, um, and actually through my colleague Ben, um, they connected about um, Jen's ministry and talked about what would feel nourishing um, to her as she um, walks alongside folks in their spiritual journeys. And so um, I got to know her through him. Um, and then in the cohort that um, he and I convened with Marta, um, Jen was also a participant in that. Um, so we get to exist in many interlocking circles, and I'm excited to continue the relationship in this medium this morning. Yeah, I was excited to join that that group of faith leaders from all over the nation. And it was so simple, but like so sacred and divine, just showing up in that virtual space and just getting to know a little bit about what other people are doing in the world that I I would have never known about, right? Like I have my own little bubble here in the Rocky Mountains um, and that's it. And so it was, it was, uh, I, I can't even, there's no words, like there's no words for the creative presence, Lily, that you and Ben created in that space and how beautiful it was, at least for me. Um, so yeah, we're, we're excited. We're excited to be having these conversations. Um, so Jen, tell us about yourself and the work you are doing in the world. Um, we'll just start with 
a simple, simple little question that might have a lot of juice to it. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to be able to um, talk with folks who are so present and so um, inspiring to, to just have some, share some space with. And I, I really felt deeply that connection um, with Lily and you, Marta, in that cohort. And I've listened to your podcast and I, I love hearing Mandy's voice um, too. So thank you. This is, um, this is a great opportunity and uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. So I serve, uh, um, I, I consider myself in service to a congregation in Corvallis, Oregon, uh, UCC Church, First Congregational, as most UCC churches are named. <laughs> um, and I've been here for 12 years in some different capacities. I've been the senior minister for about five. Um, and recently, uh, in the summer of 2019, we... Um, we took on a transitional housing project. So for the last is that three years, I have been um, the founder of Safe Place and have walked alongside um, folks experiencing houselessness uh, as we've really become sort of the most successful example of transitional housing in our city and county. So where is that located? Like, is it, is it near your congregation? Yeah, so it's on our property. Um, mm. We have what started out as tents, folks just camping in tents. Uh, we transitioned to micro shelters, which are really like garden shed size structures. Um, they don't have plumbing, but they have heating and electricity. Um, and so we started with, with, uh, with camping on our property. We transitioned to placing these micro shelter structures here. And then we've sort of blossomed out into the community through some, some hard work with the city and county um, to make it legal for communities of faith to host micro shelters on their property. So now we are a network of different um, spaces, both communities of faith and not hosting micro shelters for folks um, as, a, as a stop, as a place to take a deep breath and think about what their next step is in life. Yeah, just like a sort of a short term, like, let me take a breath, let me rest. Um, that's, that's actually amazing. Um, and, you know, I, I have so many questions about that. Like what, what, you know, using the word that Lily, you know, used last week, like what sparked that? Like what kind of, um, what was the imagination that came about? Like I'm thinking about Walter Brueggemann's mm. um, prophetic imagination. Um, because when I think about fostering connection, uh -huh. I think the only way to do that is to be imaginative about how that comes into place. And so, and I also just want to touch on, I love the, the, the word you use houselessness. Yeah. Like where did, how did, where did you, that's not a word that's normally used. Like normally it's homelessness. Um, so can you speak a little bit into that? 
Yeah, I um, I just asked so many things. That's okay. I'll tell you if I like need you to repeat. I'm going to start with the houselessness thing. Okay. Um, so it's person first language, right? Like a person experiencing houselessness because homeless isn't, that doesn't identify who a person is. A person is a person. I did not come up with that on my own. I'm so lucky to be partnered with folks um, who, who have years and years doing this work in, um, in different kinds of ways, in traditional and non-traditional ways. So one of my um, biggest partners who just magically showed up in my life early on in this um, journey three years ago, worked for a charity in Portland called Sisters of the Road, which is a pretty amazing community-oriented space for folks experiencing houselessness. Um, and she's been a huge part of helping me understand um, how to talk about people keeping their dignity and personhood intact. So so I always say people experiencing houselessness, although my friends who live outdoors, um, they do mostly refer to themselves as homeless. Um, and I, you know, that's, I, I, that's how they want to identify. Um, but I think for, for those of us who aren't experiencing that world, we don't get to, um, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. that's the reason. Um, that that we try to use that specific language. Imagination. Um, I was thinking a bit about this before, you know, last night before, as I was thinking, how will I tell this story? And um, there, this wasn't a planned event. There was no like, this is what we're going to do. And here's our plan for making it happen it um, landed on our doorstep. And then as a congregation, we had to make a decision. And I do think that there was this, we had sown some seeds, right? Kind of unintentionally, but this is an old congregation. It's been here since the, um, since the mid sixties. And we've been asking some serious questions over the past 10 years about who are we and what good is the church? And um, mm. we had curiously, you know, spent several years talking about belovedness and the church as a space primarily for seeing and being seen as a, as a space of belonging. And so we had this narrative thread of belonging that was really bedrock. And then we started asking questions about, um, where is, where is the holy right now? Where is God showing up in the neighborhood? We used Eugene Peterson's, you know, John, the first chapter of John um, to talk about where is um, God in the neighborhood? And we've been asking this question for about a year. When one morning I uh, came to work, our property, um, the church property borders a hundred acre tree farm. And um, there have been people living in that farm for, you know, 20 years. Pretty well hidden, pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I came to work one day and there were tents set up on our property, <laughs> on the border. And there's more to this story, but, but 
I didn't give anyone permission to do that. We didn't understand that that was coming. It just happened. And there were like 25 tents and multiple people in the tents seeking shelter because they'd just been swept. They'd been trespassed and swept off the place that they were living in. Mm -hmm. And um, they were sleeping on our front porch, on the front porch of our building and getting arrested for sleeping there um, because the because law enforcement assumed that a church wouldn't want people sleeping on their front mm. porch. So I mean, as don't a con- they know that's like holy ground, like, and holy ground is for all people. I mean, yeah, well, that's, that's part of what it was kind of amazing because as a congregation, everyone just knew that instantly, Marta, like everyone was like, oh, this is holy ground. And we have people, the stranger and the neighbor and the other literally just on our doorstep asking us for shelter. And there's no option other than to say, yes. And what's the next step? And what's the next step? And so would you think that, so that, so at that point you started to imagine is what I'm saying. Like you just started to like unfold um, like God's kingdom, like right in that moment, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I love that your congregation was up for, you know, Black Forest Community Church, we have one little semi, I mean, we call it the apartment project, <laughs> but it's not even like a real apartment. We just have opened up certain rooms in our church mm-hmm. and with shared fellowship space for, to host families for a short period of time. And we just started that in the pandemic, but Mandy, can you imagine having, I mean, we have lots of land too. Um, can you imagine having a small village in that space? Like that would be so happy for me. I'm so, I, like, I am envious. Like that's amazing that your church is doing that. Um, are there any, um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming like over the years you have built some deep connections with that community. Um, and that I think is part of the interconnection that we are wanting to live into. Do you have mm-hmm. any specific stories of where you really saw acutely an interconnection between your congregation and that community um, and where your spiritual leadership really lived into that space? So that's a curious question because um, mm-hmm. Most of this, um, you know, so 2019, we had a little bit of time as a whole congregation before pandemic shut us down. Um, and for the, for most of that time, um, the congregation as a whole was focused pretty predominantly on um, community organizing because it was a battle. Um, mm-hmm. The city and the county tried to shut us down from day one. Um, and so it took, it took a ton of advocacy and political action to, to legitimize what we were doing and then make it possible for other congregations to do the same. So, um, there was a core group of folks in the congregation, maybe a a small group, maybe five people who had experience um, working with 
folks living in extreme poverty with untreated mental illness and addiction, which we're, are all interconnected in this space. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. And so it was really important to me not to, um, not to become just like, like the do-gooder middle-class white people who went out and offered charity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was pretty fierce about keeping the circle kind of small in terms of who from the congregation actually connected one-on-one and made relationship with folks. Um, In part, because I had to learn how to do that as well, how to live in a relationship of um, equality. Mm -hmm. And so, and so I had this core team that, I mean, we couldn't have done anything without them. We literally spent there were, there were days where we were at the church for 24 hours because neighbors from the, from the housed folks across the street were pissed mm. and they would come over and harass people and try to get them to go. And, um, we had to like provide security basically for 24 hours for, for a really long period of time. So this amazing team just, you know, stepped up, did these things were phenomenal. Um, but the congregation as a whole, like really got into the advocacy and political action around it. And then just as we're like in this moment of starting to do some training, trauma-informed care and pandemic hits. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. And so did you, did you stop or were you able to sort of continue? We continued. So it became a very, it became a, you know, and I had two full-time jobs and then this small group of volunteers, like God bless them. They had two full-time jobs too. And we started to make connections with other nonprofits that really helped us, but, um, it limited our capacity to, to connect the congregation in this like relational space with folks. But what's um, interesting is it probably broke open more space for you to be able to actually do that work. Oh, for um, sure. Which was, which is, you know, amazing because I mean, I think that the holy ground for congregations, particularly mainline um, congregations, um, is that space, that space for um, doing the work with marginalized communities. Like that is actually the church. Um, and so um, that is faith life. That is, um, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, part of what I think Mandy and I were thinking was like, Jesus actually left the building, meaning Jesus actually left the the temple. Jesus actually left the tradition. Jesus actually left um, what is comfortable for us to actually do this holy work, right? Yeah. And um, and I hope that like there are faith communities out there when they hear these stories are thinking about like what is holy ground for them that they're not living fully into, meaning who are those communities that they somehow know that are there, but have not done that interconnection work 
yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, for us up in the Black Forest, we're in Northern El Paso County, which is another Bible Belt, like evangelical world. And so um, maybe our holy ground is living into the LGBTQ plus community in a more radical way, right? And so I'm just giving examples for people out there because your story is so compelling. Um, like you went full force into like, we're going to do this work. Um, and that's like, it is wildly inspiring. Um, Thank you. I, I mean, yes, I'm so inspired. I, I think the past three years, um, it's been a conversion experience for me in so many ways. I mean, I just, it's true for me too. Like, I didn't know, like, what is the point of the church? What are we doing? What in the world is going on? And when we started to ask, um, we started to pay attention. And here's the thing. I think, I mean, I hear so many people in congregations say, well, we don't know what to do. We have to go look, right? Let's, um, let's go look for who needs us and who, um, who can use our help. Um, and I get that. I get that. I think it's important to see, right? Mm, to keep our eyes mm-hmm. open. But I mm. also think that there's um, sometimes all you have to do is pay attention to what's coming to you, right? Like yes. what's on your doorstep. And it, it happened really literally for us. And um, it's not going to be literal for every congregation, but I think paying attention to where, you know, your, your square foot, like your corner of the earth, what is right there in front of you? And it's maybe not what you wanted. And it's maybe not sexy. In seminary, I um, had a really good friend who did um, work with folks living outside under the bridges in Portland. And I literally, every time I had to encounter Ken and hear his stories, about engaging folks living on the streets, I thought, thank Jesus, I am not called to that because I don't want to do that. I could never do that. That's, that just sounds so hard and traumatizing to me. I would never have gone looking to be involved in this work, but it came to us Mm -hmm. and, and saved me. It's been my own salvation in so many ways. I mean, it's quite literally profit work. I mean, the way, the way that Jesus, I mean, the way that God calls um, the prophets in the Hebrew Bible to do this work that um, was also life-saving for them, right? Like they're, they're like, they, they did not know that they were going to be called to do that. And then all of a sudden they're put in these radical situations. I mean, I'm even thinking of the women who were not named prophets, like, you know, Esther and Miriam and, um, but were just like put into these spaces and just did the work. Like, it's like, you know, for such a time as this, right. Um, and that, that is, I think the space that you are in and is just beautiful. I'm going to stop talking now. (laughs) (laughs) When I think something that's standing out to me about what you're sharing is that it's so relational. It's both like the relationship that you're having with your congregants and your congregation and thinking about like, who are the people around me and how can I deepen with them? And like, what are the needs there? Like based on how we know each other and the access that you and your congregation have and the stability that that provides to be able to allow that to ripple out. And so that's really standing out to me in terms of like, 
kind of like look around and see where you can deepen. Um, and I'm curious about, I know my experience in congregational life and in like religious spaces is that like when that social justice call comes or there's this moment where we're like, we want to do something like in the world or we want to answer that relational moment. It sometimes can get like so logistic heavy, right? Or so like, let's make things, let's do things like, and sometimes there's really necessary urgency that's coming because there's like direct need from a relationship that's happening. And I'm curious about like, what are the ways that ritual, spiritual practice, tradition kind of infuse that work for you and like move as a source of like sustenance, maybe challenge, but what does the relationship look like for you? And then also how do you hold that as a leader um, in the space you, you navigate? I'm gonna try to do my best to answer all that, Lily. And if I'm off track, I hope you'll redirect me. Um, you're right, there was so much of the logistics and it was so, it was so intense um, in that way for such a long time. And for a really long time, that was most of what I was focusing on, mm -hmm. right? Like, how do you set this thing up? How do I jump over the hurdles that exist? How do we do this in a way that um, is safe? And, you know, we got to figure out how to feed people, how to keep them safe, how to do all of these different things. And then the incredible political pushback um, and the neighborhood who so viciously opposed us. I mean, that just consumed me for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. more than a year. And I recognized at some point that I'd kind of lost focus on the individuals who were living here, you know, who I was in relationship with because, mm -hmm. because there were all of these deadlines and tasks that needed to be done. And so I went back into this space of just hanging out with people and making sure that I went outside and walked through the forest and spent time connecting and listening to stories and saying yes when someone rang the church doorbell and wanted to chat about something. Um, and what I, what I knew, what I always knew and still know, but sometimes I have to remember it, is that the same things that I believe are the best things the church has to offer the people who come inside to the sanctuary space or are connected virtually in all the ways that we are the church now. And we've talked a lot about how we don't go to church. We are the church literally in this new mm -hmm. pandemic world. Um, what we have to offer is seeing and being seen and being seen as our 
our core selves. I tell my, I've told my congregation for years because I'm telling myself the truest thing about me is that I am beloved. That's my identity. And it's not because of my accomplishments and it's not in spite of my mistakes. It simply is. And I've gotten so much, I mean, that's a message that at least for my congregation, it's life-changing to hear that week after week and to have space where you are both seen and then in return can start opening yourself up to, to see others. And that is the same need that the folks who live across the, um, the driveway from me and on the streets and in the woods of Corvallis, they want the exact same thing. They want to be seen and they are desperate to be reminded of their identity. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think, you know, that's so to me, that's at the heart of um, the gospel story. And so that keeps me alive. And as long as I remember, and I forget often and have to like create ways to remind myself that that's all I have to do really um, is be willing to see and open myself up. So I tell the truth about who I am and my story and I'm vulnerable because I want to live in relationships of mutuality with folks in my congregation who are housed and folks who are unhoused and just tell the truth to each other. And when that happens, there's some magic there, right? There's energy, there's aliveness, there's joy um, that is deeply nourishing and provides sustenance for the, the journey. Um, and I'm trying to figure out the balance of all, you know, how do you continue to advocate and community organize, which I think is a spiritual practice, but that other piece of it is so important uh, to feed, I guess. I'm not sure that I've answered your question. I think you have. And I see a lot of connections between like focusing in on how beloved each of us are and, and ourselves are, and that like that changes an interaction between people in terms of how we are able to see and be seen. And I see that as like so connected to feeling our interconnectedness and feeling like that there, there's something bigger, whether that's the connection between all of us, whether that's the divine, whether that's all the same thing. Um, and that that ultimately fuels the really hard work of changing policy, of changing ordinances, of doing advocacy work is like in the service of maintaining that interconnection and being like, this is really true and alive and here. And I know that because we see each other. Um, so it makes that work like it, it fuels it um, in a really beautiful way and it nourishes us at the same time. And I think that both have to be happening Yeah. in a given yeah. moment. That's right. I just have to say one thing, don't get mad at me. Um, <laughs> well, no, because I'm just thinking like, for me, it's so easy to um, see and be seen by my congregation. And it would be so easy for me to be, to see and be seen by even the homeless community that surrounded me. But do you know what would be the hardest thing? is to be seen and see those neighbors that were so not for this mission. Um, 
I mean, I don't, I don't know how you felt about that, but that would like, I think that is where I want to really dive into that interconnectedness because I think we're living in such a divided world right now. Um, but I bet was, was that the hardest part about it or was that easier for you? Um, this is me going rogue. Oh, I'm going to answer this question. Honestly. Um, I don't know that I even tried Marta and, um, that's hard for me to admit. I, it's especially hard because I grew up in a, a fundamentalist evangelical world and I have a lot of experience. I taught at a seminary that was Quaker evangelical, and I have a lot of experience in a classroom setting, figuring out how to um, engage, you know, a whole, a completely different mindset and framework and be in a conversational space. And I've considered myself a bridge, a bridge person, right, for a really long time. And then these neighbors um, were so vicious and not just with words, but um, you know, a neighbor came across the street and like threatened me physically. And that happened multiple times. And they threatened the people who live here physically. And I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't hold that reality. I was, it was, and I'm not sure if this is right or wrong, right? I don't know. But I really had a moment where I had to decide who, who is my primary concern here? And I just decided it's these vulnerable people. I am going to do everything I can, I can possibly can to protect them. And I thought of this like concentric circle situation. And I thought, okay, who do I have to um, be nice to <laughs> or have the majority of my conversations or work with? And it's like, my partners, right? Like my council, the folks in my congregation who are most connected in leadership. And then I have to think about the congregation. And then maybe I have to think about um, the neighborhood. And then I have to think about the, and, and the neighborhood and Corvallis as a whole never really rose very high on my list of people that I needed to work super hard to take care of and be in conversation with. I tried really hard not to be nasty but I also did not try to build a lot of bridges. I, I couldn't use my energy in that way. And what has happened, you know, over a period of three years is their angry energy has pretty much subsided. And there are a lot of folks in the neighborhood who, um, you know, they're financial donors and they're delightful and they send really kind notes and they participate in, um, in groups that we share information um, among ourselves. And I do see that as something I could have done better and wish that I had done better because they are just as worthy of being seen and held. And I didn't, I didn't do it very well. I think it's a really, um, it's an interesting thing to think about kind of as we um, finish this up because that space of um, 
you know, as you started with this idea of everyone is beloved, not for any particular reason, except for that they are, um, is like, it's so much what brings us together. Um, and as we, um, if, if we can't remember it, it's what separates us, right? Um, that concentric circle thing is really helpful to me, you know, in lots of ways. I think it starts, um, is it, it's a grief, um, there's like a, uh, a way to manage grief and to help people in grief and how connected all of this is to our grieving and our, um, and our being together as humans and the, the grief, the pain, the joy, all of it, um, it is so interconnected and related. Um, and so I really appreciate, Jen, your willingness to be um, honest and vulnerable um, in answering that question. It's, it's really helpful as we grow together in who we become, like knowing that there are ways that we totally fucked it up is really important. And being able to just say, that's a thing I didn't do as well as I wish I had. And then the ways that you come back to that community and say, oh, look, here's some partnerships that we can build from here. That's really important. Um, so we have this thing where we're trying to do this as rapid response, but I don't know if it really is. Um, we just, we want you to just kind of off the top of your head, um, which I feel like you've done a great job of doing already um, with these questions, like what feels possible to you now that wasn't possible before? And I think we initially um, thought about this question in terms of pre-pandemic and now whatever part of the pandemic we're in. Um, but like, I wanna know actually like going back to 2019 when you started this product project, like what feels possible to you now that wasn't possible before you started this project? Um, what's essential? What was it essential before that's not essential now? What are the things that are like cracking open for you now? There's so much possible now that I, I couldn't have imagined pre-pandemic. I couldn't have imagined um, that we would get so clear about who the most vulnerable were. And, and that I think is true on a global scale in many ways are because maybe we had to focus because we were all stuck at home, right? We have seen so clearly like, who gets the worst of the shit? And we've always known, you know, it's non-white people. It's the, those who are living in extreme poverty. It's those who are on the margins, but it's so clear. And I think that that for my congregation, for a really white upper middle-class academic converse, congregation who knows a lot about a lot, but has never felt it or experienced it the way I think we have as a nation, um, I can talk about, we can talk about white body supremacy in a way that we never could have before. And when you talk about white body supremacy, you get all of these interlocking oppressions that we can also talk about, including poverty, including um, those who have untreated mental illness, those who, and so I just think the margins of the conversation that we're able to have have expanded and people are more willing to identify where racism lives in us, where um, classism is so, so 
that's really exciting to me. It's been very exciting. I also think um, that without, I don't know, the world shutting down in a way, it would have been really, really so much harder for the church to understand that the church is not the building, right? That there's nothing about this container that is church. Like Jesus left the building. Jesus was never in the fucking building to begin with, um, right? And so that is so clear, I think, to my congregation, to many congregations, to many people in Corvallis now, in our little tiny town, folks who, you know, the Pacific Northwest is not religious and folks who would have nothing to do with church, never go into a building, have this conversation about what First Congregational is doing in the neighborhood that we never would have, this never would have happened. And pandemic gave us a lot of money from a lot of different places that made so much more possible. So I think the idea that the container is an idol, the building is an idol, and we have to get out. Um, I don't know. I think pandemic cracked all of that open. I think all of the things that happened on a political scale um, and in the public eye have have changed the world for us. I hope we don't go back to normal. I, I'm worried um, that we will. I think that it's totally possible, but I'm also really hoping that we resist that. The, the chasm between the rich and poor, it's so clear. We can see so clearly if we could just remember it. Um, I also, you know, we did something interesting during pandemic when our building was shut down and we shut down for a really long time. We renovated our sanctuary. We took the pews out. We made it an open space that could be a multi-purpose um, space that is for the public, right? Let's invite people to use the space in a way that is not churchy, that works for them. We can use it as emergency shelter. We can use it in so many different ways. And I, I hope, I think what we've learned that what is not essential is to ever again argue about pews versus chairs or the color of the carpet or how shitty the communion bread is this Sunday. Like, I just hope all of that's gone. Um, it's probably not, but I think we know it's not essential. Maybe. No, I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. Um, we put our pews in a circle. Like, Actually, I did it like within the first couple of months I was there, I unscrewed all of them and put them in a circle. I almost actually got in big trouble for it, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but, you know, I was trying, I was looking around for some, you know, quotes and poems and, you know, just to accompany this. And so I went to Dorothy Day. But the funny thing is, and I think this speaks to particularly our contexts of white, middle, upper middle class people is that are smart and professional and theoretically they know all the things, right? But the funny thing about Dorothy Day is there wasn't actually any good written content because she didn't actually think about it. She didn't write about it, she did it. And, and I'm hoping, yeah, with those last words that you said that people will live into that a little bit more, more deeply. Me too. I hope that for myself. Um, I've found so much of my own, like, I have thought, well, my value in this 
conversation and social healing and whatever it is that is in thinking and writing and speaking. And part of, I think, my own conversion experience has been actually, I don't know what good any of that is. Mm-hmm. The most, the, the closest I've been to feeling like I am doing holy work. This matters to me. This is, is you know, holding someone's hand when they're having an overdose. Yes. That, that aligns me so clear. I'm like, oh, this is it. I have to be outside. I cannot spend all my time thinking and writing. And that's the ritual right there. Yeah. With people mm-hmm. in their, in their most profound suffering, in their darkest moments, um, and in the horror, in proximity to the horror. Um, there's so few people who are willing to go there and it's so profoundly necessary. Yes, 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 yes. And that is what I think our faith communities need to point towards. And I don't, I don't know how we're going to do that all the way, um, steeped in patriarchy and hierarchy that um, even us as women are drenched in and somehow can't figure out a way to step out of um, in our religious contexts. Um, but I think that is that is the work. And the more that we tell these stories um, mm-hmm. and, and, and publish them and get them out there and hopefully it will just have start to have some ripple effects, that's my hope. I think you're right. And I also think this is so important, right? Like gathering, gathering some people. Um, and I just, I just love, um, that I've been able to chat with you all this morning. It enlivens me. It reminds me that I'm not alone and, uh, it's so, I feel so alone so much of the time. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Jen. It's been so nice to get to talk together and to continue our relationship in this way. And I feel like I'm taking a lot from this and I'm excited to figure out what are the ways putting like values into practice in the world um, in like the really tender places that it needs to be need to be. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lily. Thank you. Thank you, Marta. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you. Hey everybody, our friend and colleague, Reverend Aurelia Davila Pratt published a timely book called Brown Girls Epiphany, Reclaim Your Intuition and Step Into Your Power. Aurelia was a guest in our very first season of Jesus Has Left the Building, and her new book comes out September 13th. You can pre-order it now. This book speaks the powerful voice of a woman, pastor, mother, and advocate, and Aurelia gives us the compassionate nudge and the tools we need to access our inner authority. You can find more about her book at www.revaurelia.com. J-O-Y.com. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Find us on Facebook at JHLTB and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world. To support our work, search for Black Forest Community Church on Venmo to make a one-time donation or become a patron on our Patreon account at patreon.com slash jhltb to commit monthly to this project.
you'll get regular communications and updates about our stories. We give thanks to Black Forest Community Church and the Tributary Fund of the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ for their ongoing support. We could not do this without all who support. Jesus has left the building.